You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. Well, this evening in our time together, I want us to think about the epoch-making significance of Easter. I want us to think about the fact that Easter stands at the very center of history. I want us to get a real sense of how it is something which is, by very definition, life-changing and transforming, so that we can go out from here this evening and live as Easter people in the full significance of the glory that is revealed in Jesus' death and resurrection. And in order to do with that, travel back with me to the first Palm Sunday nearly 2,000 years ago. Jerusalem would have been packed to overflowing. Now, estimates vary about the number of pilgrims who actually would have come up in order to worship at Passover, but probably conservatively, it is quite realistic that at least 200,000 people had flocked into Jerusalem from across the Mediterranean. And they had come to a place which was, in terms of its size, really something of a large town. The place would have been packed with people. And it seemed as if everyone who was there was talking about Jesus. Just hours beforehand, earlier in the day, Jesus had traveled into the city and he had arrived in a triumphant procession. And as people talked about Jesus, people were aware that credible rumors were circulating amongst the crowd that Jesus had just raised a man from the dead. And there were many people who insisted that they had seen that man raised from the dead with their own eyes. It was also known that the authorities hated Jesus. There was a price on his head. And in verse 19 of chapter 12 here, we find the Pharisees snarling because they know that they are losing influence. From the Pharisees' point of view, as they talked about Jesus, they said, it seems as if the whole world has gone over to him. And now John tells us that their fears were well-founded. The Pharisees had latched onto a truth of significance which was much greater than what they had realized at that point. The whole world was going after Jesus. Here in these verses, the nations were coming and they were wanting to see Jesus. They were wanting to speak to him. In verse 20, these Greeks arrive on the scene. Now, who were they? These Greeks were probably people who we describe as God-fearers. They were people who were converts to the theology and the ethics of Judaism. Lots of things about the worship of God's people attracted them. There were lots of things that they found really remarkable about the morality of God's people. They were God-fearers, but they hadn't yet gone the full distance 
and undergone circumcision in order to become Jews themselves. But despite all of that, they were up in Jerusalem for Passover, and they were there in order to worship God. And they make that request in verse 21 that we've thought about a few times already. They said, we want to see Jesus. It's just a great wish, isn't it? I want to see Jesus. I want to be with him. I want to encounter him. I want to hear from him. It's a great wish. At my old theological college, there was a lectern right at the front. And on the lectern, there was a little plaque which had that text inscribed on it, reminding every would-be preacher who stepped up before that lectern what their job and responsibility was. The people out there in front of them, they needed to see Jesus. They needed to meet him on the pages of his word. So there were these Greek God-fearers. They want to see the Lord. They go to Philip. Philip doesn't know what to do, and so he goes to Andrew, and then together they go to Jesus, and they start to explain the fact that they've been talking to some of these Greeks, and the Greeks have asked if they could see Jesus. But Jesus' response to all of this is in some senses strange, because his response isn't one of, Great, come, you know, where are these people? I want to meet to them. I want to talk to them. It's not even, now is not the time. I'm just too busy with the events of this day. I'm too busy contemplating the events of this week to have time for them. Nor is it even one of, I haven't come for the Greeks. I've come first and foremost for the Jews. What's really curious here is that we have no record of any words which Jesus exchanged with them. In fact, there's no record at all of Jesus ever replying directly to the request which comes through Andrew and Philip. Instead, when they come and bring this request to Jesus, it's as if our Lord goes off into a meditation. If it was a drama, we might say he enters into something of a soliloquy here. Jesus lets us in on his thoughts about a moment which he has clearly been waiting for for some time. Because the coming of the Greeks on Palm Sunday brought home to our Lord that he was approaching the decisive climax of things. He takes their request as a signal from his Father in heaven, a sign that the culmination of his work was at hand before him. This is a defining moment. Jesus is given the sign that the peoples of this world are starting to come, and their arrival, their request, it triggers something. Jesus says, the hour has come. And what Jesus is talking about here when he says, my hour or my time, that's a little motif that has been punctuating the previous 11 chapters of John's gospel. Because if you were to read through those, you would notice Jesus saying over and over again that his hour had not yet come. But now in verse 23, he says, it's happened. 
Now's the time. The hour has come. What's it the hour for? What is this time for? It is time for Easter. The key defining moment that stands right at the center of the history of the world. This is the decisive moment. Everything else was simply a prelude and a preparation for what is now about to come. And our main point this evening is that Easter, it is the hour of glory. Easter is the time for the revelation of the glory of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now's the time. The hour has come, and it is the hour of glory. Well, it's the hour of glory, verse 23. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. That's an Old Testament term from Daniel chapter 7. It's talking about the one who is the long-awaited ruler of the whole world. The Son of Man, the one who is going to be served by, and the one who will rule over all peoples and nations and languages. And that Son of Man, Jesus Christ, is now going to be glorified. But it is not in the way that most people expected. Jesus' generation, they sought glory in trumpets and crowds and armies. And when they welcomed him into Jerusalem on the morning of Palm Sunday with palm branches in their hands, the glory that many of them desired was one which was nationalistic. Easter is going to reveal God's glory in a very, very different way. Look ahead to verse 27. Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled. The hour of glory is going to be an hour of agony and inner turmoil. This hour has come. The moment is here. And Jesus is traumatized right to the very depths of his being. His heart is torn in two by what lies ahead. What we see here is the man of sorrows, one acquainted with grief. And in verse 27 and 8, in this turmoil and anguish, Jesus considers what he should pray for. What request should he make to his Father in heaven? Save me from the sorrow? Well, that petition is raised only to be dismissed. He couldn't pray that intercession because this hour was the whole purpose of his coming to earth. This was something that the Father and Son had planned from all eternity. So wonderfully, strikingly, Jesus prays something else. And his prayer is simply this, glorify your name. The language that's used indicates that Jesus here is thinking of a unique, one-off moment of glorification. Lord, bring me to the hour, bring me to the time, to the moment of glory. Glorify your name. And in verses 28 and 29, there's a great miracle of Palm Sunday. The Son receives 
a thunderous heavenly response of affirmation to his prayer. What a moment it must have been. Just as the Father had spoken at Jesus' baptism from heaven, and he had spoken again at Jesus' transfiguration on the mountain, now once more he speaks from heaven in order to reassure his Son. The Father had glorified his name. He had glorified it in his ministry here on earth, in his teaching, in his miracles, miracles like the raising of Lazarus. The Father encouraged the Son that he would glorify his name still once more. In the language of verse 32, the Son is going to be lifted up. It would not be the hour of glory that most people were expecting. John has to explain it to us through making a brief editorial comment in verse 33. This lifting up describes the sort of death that Jesus was going to die. Jesus would be glorified by being lifted up, by being hoisted up in his crucifixion. He would be lifted up just like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. The Son of Man would would be raised to glory by being lifted up on the stake. This cross was the place of shame. No one thought of it as a place of glory. It was a place of dishonor. Crucifixion was reserved for the most guilty of criminals. Anyone who had died a death like that was regarded as someone who was cursed by God. But the Son of Man, he will be glorified by being lifted up on his cross. It's not as if the glory comes afterwards. His lifting up begins in his death. The glorification wouldn't be accomplished some other way. Apart from it, it would be accomplished through his death on the cross. And his soul is troubled, not only by the prospect of the pain and humiliation of that lonely, naked, cruel death. In that moment on Palm Sunday, a cold chill of the impending shadow of the cross falls upon Jesus. On Good Friday, that would engulf him completely as he would bear the wrath of God. The wrath of God would be placed upon him. He would suffer in the place of sinners on their behalf. The inner turmoil of this day was a prelude to what our Lord would experience days later on the olive grove of Gethsemane on the night before he died. So Jesus will be glorified. He'll be glorified by being lifted up And Easter will reveal God's glory in three ways. Verse 31, first of all. Easter will be glorious because it is the time for judgment of the world. Not the final judgment, but still a judgment nonetheless. In Jesus' death, the end times will begin Or to put it another way, in Jesus' death and resurrection, the future is going to come 
and it is going to invade the present. Now is the time for judgment in the world. Now is the time for judgment on the world because the cross shows us what our sinfulness is like. The cross shows us that we are guilty sinners who are worthy of condemnation. Even when the Son of God comes into this world, what do people do to him? Well, they would crucify him. They would put God to death. Easter shows us our sin. And Easter shows us that the cross divides humanity. People's response to the death of Jesus divides our world between those who are condemned and those who are acquitted. Those who trust Jesus for salvation are united to him in his death. His death is their death. His condemnation is their condemnation. His vindication is their vindication. As Jesus said back in chapter 5, those who trust him will not come into judgment because they have already passed from death to life. But those who won't trust Jesus, the crucified Savior, they stand condemned already. Easter and our attitude to it, it divides humanity between those who are condemned and those who are justified. Still in the second half of verse 31 now, Easter reveals God's glory in another way, a second way. It shows us that the ruler of this world has been cast out. The people were full of hope in Palm Sunday because they wanted a king who would give them what they wanted. They wanted a king who would drive out their enemies. But they, like us, have a much deeper problem than simply their circumstances. They had a problem far worse than Roman occupation. And it's the same for us. And that problem is the problem of our sin. And more. It's the problem of our sin, but it's also the problem that there is a ruler of this world who is holding everyone captive. By nature, we are in bondage. We're held in bondage to the one that John describes as the ruler of this world. And no matter how our lives might appear on the outside, by nature, each one of us is born into this world in the grip of the evil one. We are born slaves. And don't we know that to be true? We know it in our own hearts. And as we look around in this world, we can see it played out in the lives of other people as well. We are sinners. And there is a ruler of this world who holds us in a vice-like grip. Well, here's another spectacular way in which Easter reveals the glory of the gospel. Because through Jesus' death and resurrection, Satan has experienced a decisive defeat. Not his final defeat, but a decisive defeat. He has been cast out. His reign of tyranny has been and is being broken. Broken. 
How does this happen? Well, Satan is the great accuser. And his great weapon, the thing that he uses us, uses to hold us in that grip, the way in which he keeps us captive, is our guilt. And his reign of tyranny is broken through what Jesus, the Lamb of God, does as he dies to take away the sins of the world. When the price is paid, when Jesus goes to the cross, when he dies the death that we deserve to die, well then, the devil is disarmed and has no hold on Jesus' people. It's as if Satan, the accuser, is cast out of the heavenly courtroom. Our accuser now has no admissible evidence against Jesus' people because Jesus' blood is powerful enough to silence every accusation. No one is able to bring any charge against God's elect, those who trust in him. Their chains are gone. They've been set free because God, their Savior, has rescued them. Satan is cast out. The accuser is thrown out of the heavenly courtroom. And we know this. It's something that we sing about. Do you remember the words? When Satan tempts me to despair. And how's the accuser do it? Well, he tells me of the guilt within. What do we do? What ought we to do? Well, upward I look. And see him there, the one who made an end to all my sin. And here's the logic of it. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. Why? Well, because God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Easter is glorious because Satan, the great accuser, is cast out of the heavenly courtroom. He no longer has any charge that he can bring before God's heavenly throne. He can accuse us here on earth. He can tempt us to despair. But when we look up and when we see Jesus Christ risen from his death at the Father's right hand, we can say, Satan is cast out. We are forgiven and we are justified. One last way in which Easter reveals God's glory. It's in verse 32. Jesus' death, it secures a vast ingathering of people. Easter is glorious because through Easter, the nations are brought in to God's family. Jesus says that when he is lifted up, he will enable all kinds of people to be drawn to him. Jews and Greeks, all without distinction. They'll be drawn to him. They'll be drawn to come most willingly. They won't come kicking and screaming. They'll come drawn by hearts that have been changed and transformed. They will serve their king gladly. 
And this international influx, this gathering in of people like us from what would have been in the first Palm Sunday, the very, very farthest reaches of the world which were known to Romans at the time, this international influx is possible through Jesus' death. And that's why right at the end of verse 36, Jesus goes and hides himself. These Greeks, they will be welcomed. They will be brought in. But it will only happen through his death. Jesus goes and withdraws and he hides himself for just a few days. And after his death, these Greeks, like us, will be able to approach Jesus with boldness and confidence. Easter reveals God's glory. In the cross, God's plans and purposes shine out. But what does all this mean for us this evening? And to answer that question, let's go back and close by looking at verses 24 to 26. What's it mean, we might say, to live as Easter people? What's it mean to live in the light of the glory that is revealed in Easter? Well, in verse 24, Jesus speaks and says, truly, truly. Jesus wants us to listen to something of the utmost seriousness here. It's a solemn way to begin a royal proclamation. And he says, you need to understand this. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, you don't need to be a farmer or a keen gardener to understand the illustration that's been used there. The grain has to be planted. It's got to be planted in the ground if there is ever going to be a harvest. And the point for us is that life comes through death. Jesus had to be laid in the ground if there was to be this great harvest. He had to be planted in the grave if he was going to be raised up to be the bread of life for the world. Jesus didn't love his life so much that he wouldn't lay it down. Instead, he was one who would die so that he wouldn't remain alone, but would instead bring many sons to glory. And we are not spectators in this. At least, we ought not to be spectators looking in at this from the outside, because believers are included throughout verses 24 to 26. Do you see that? Jesus is speaking to us here. If we want to see his glory, we have to get ready to follow him on the path that he is walking. We have to walk the road that leads to Calvary. Jesus says, if you want to see my glory, if you want my glory to shine out, well then, we need to bury ourselves in the service of others. This is a call to discipleship. It's a call to Christian service. It is a challenge to give up our lives for the sake of others. And it's a challenge that comes with a warning attached in verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it. But whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. 
It's a black and white warning. It's meant to unsettle us. It couldn't be any more stark. There's no middle ground here. The Lord is warning us about a life which is focused on self, a life that's all about being safe and secure and successful, a life that's centered on prosperity, popularity, and pleasure, a life that insists on holding God at arm's length. A life like that is focused on me and my agenda. That means that my life is the one which is elevated and lifted up. And Jesus warns us that whoever loves their life like that will lose it. They'll lose it now, but especially they will lose it for eternity, for the world to come. But whoever hates his life in this world, he'll keep it for eternal life. Turning to Jesus Christ in repentance is what is meant by hating life, by loving God's ways and submitting to Christ. So let me ask you, what do you need to die to this week? What do you need to leave behind so that you can see Jesus more clearly? It's a challenge. These are hard words, demanding words, so don't miss the promise that's attached to them. The promise, verse 25, of the joy of eternal life. Verse 26, the present reality of Christ's presence through this life. On in further into verse 26, the honor of the Father. Why would we ever live for ourselves in this world if instead we could live for eternal life, life with Jesus, life with the blessing of our Father in heaven? So let's close with verse 34. The crowd hear all of this, and many of them completely misunderstand it. So Jesus says these solemn words in verse 35 and 36. The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. The light of the world would only be among them for a matter of a few more days. And Jesus challenges them to walk in the light before the darkness comes, before the darkness overtakes them. What does this mean? Well, it means the same for us as it meant for them. Because for all of it, for all of us, there will come a day when there are no more opportunities. The darkness will come. It happened for the people of Jerusalem. Within a generation of Jesus speaking these words, the temple and the city had been destroyed. And none of us know how long the light will be before us. And so the invitation is, while you have the light, believe in the light. And if you follow Jesus along this path of discipleship, you will become sons and daughters of the light, beacons in this dark world. So this Holy Week, as we prepare for Easter in the days ahead, let us remember that Easter 
It is the hour of glory. And let us be determined that we will live as Easter people, giving away our lives in the service of others. Because as we do that, we will walk in the light and we will shine out in this dark world. Let us pray. Thank you.